I want to start today by having a very frank conversation with you about the state of the Australian church, but in particular, the state of Australian leaders within the church. Uh, having been to Bible college myself, uh, not that long ago, as you may see from my appearance, I was with our new burgeoning cohort that's going to go out into all of Australia and are going to be the future pastors and leaders of the Australian church. And having been with them and sat alongside them and seen what's coming on, I can't say that I'm that thrilled and energized by what the future might have for us. I've had many conversations with men aspiring to ministry, and I've noticed many things, and these things are across denominations, but mainly in the Baptist kind of world. I've seen men weak and compromised on very important doctrines. I've seen men apologetic about Christian beliefs. I've seen men unwilling to enter into any sort of conflict, and if they do, well, it's very rare. It's hard to see. Uh, men who are simply too nice to effectively shepherd a vulnerable flock in the face of very real and very serious dangers. Uh, we have traded the shepherd in the Australian church, uh, as a general rule, for the hireling, the hired hand, because they are much more approachable and easy. That man enjoys a good wage. He's got a good reputation. He's got a good platform, but with no courage, no conviction, no boldness, and no zeal for God's most holy church. See, the, the thing we're facing now in Australia is that we're, we're going to increasingly face crisis. Now, we're not necessarily in a crisis mode right now, but the writing's kind of on the wall. It's kind of the King Belshazzar moment. We see that things are going poorly for us, and we see that the war is kind of going on all these different fronts. You know, at the moment, Christian schools are getting attacked, but it's not going to be long before Christian churches find themselves in, in crisis. And the problem with hirelings is when hardship comes, when paychecks are threatened and reputations are on the line, the hireling runs. Now, he might not run out of the pulpit and he might not run out of his job, but he runs away from the word of God. And we end up with churches whose greatest fear is controversy. Controversy is like the bane of any church's existence. They hate controversy. They hate offending people and upsetting the culture. They are churches who, let's face it, would rebuke Paul, when Paul got a little spicy, they might rebuke John the Baptist. That guy was a bit of a loose cannon, right? They might even rebuke Jesus because you guys are unloving. This is not to say that we should desire harsh, belligerent leaders. I don't want harsh, belligerent leaders in the church and I hope you don't want them either. But I'll tell you what I do want. I want men with range. I want men who know when to be harsh and when to be gentle. I want men who know how to scare off wolves and when to comfort sheep, when to rebuke and when to bind up. Or otherwise, we will end up with men who are simply this bureaucratic managers who maintain the status quo at all costs. As Jesus says, there is a big difference between the two. John 10, he talks about his role as a shepherd and contrasts his shepherding role with those of the leaders of Israel. And here's what he says about them. He says in John 10, 11 and 13, the words will be coming up on the screen for you. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. See, we want leaders in our church who are Christ-like, 
who lay down their lives. But all too often we end up with shepherds who run and crumble when pressure comes. So I want to share from 1 Peter 5 today three things with you guys. The first one, I want to share the nature of a shepherd. We're going to look into what a shepherd is, what, they are, what they're called to do. Number two, the qualifications of a shepherd, what we should expect of them. And number three, the responsibility of the flock, what that means for you guys. I'm fully aware that most of the application points for this sermon is probably going to apply to me and not to you guys. Uh, but right at the end, Peter does have a word for us all. Uh, so let's get into it. From verse one, I'm just going to read... Uh, the fir- uh, verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. We'll pause there. Peter begins by exhorting all the churches. We remember from Peter chapter 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. There's churches all over Asia Minor at this point. And he's instructing them, these elders, how you ought to exercise your leadership and authority within the church. Now, it's interesting because Paul, uh, Peter sorry, doesn't address them here as an apostle. Right? He doesn't say, guys, listen up. I'm an apostle. Pay attention, elders of the church. I'm in charge. I'm a big kind of guy. I'm the chief of all the apostles. Listen to me. He doesn't say that. He emphasizes the fact that he says here that I am a fellow elder, just like you. I'm one of you guys. I do the same ministry as you. I may have a higher authority. He doesn't say that in the passage. Like he does have a higher authority. But he brings himself down with the rest of the elders and says, I am like you guys. He's someone who witnessed the crucifixion of Christ. He saw his resurrection from the dead. He beheld all these glories and he will inherit the same reward as all of those elders he's writing to. He says, here is your task, elders. Here is your task. Shepherd the flock of God. You see, decades ago, Peter had failed Jesus. Peter was this kind of like brash, hard-headed guy, he valiantly claimed, he said, I would never reject you, Jesus. He said, Lord, I would be willing to die for you. And Jesus is like, really? Are you sure about that, Peter? And Jesus breaks the news to him, he says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're about to deny me three times. When Peter stood, uh, sorry, Jesus stood on trial at the Sanhedrin, Peter swore up and down that he never knew Jesus. He didn't want the heat when it actually came. Now, this would be a sad and terrible story of rejection and betrayal of our Lord, but that betrayal of Peter would not come to define him. After the resurrection, Jesus came to visit Peter again and doing what he, uh, seeing Peter doing what he does best, he's fishing. And Jesus asked Peter three times, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he graciously gave Peter three opportunities to confess to Jesus, that he does indeed love him. And here is what Jesus then told Peter to do. First time, feed my lambs. Second time, shepherd my sheep. And then the third time is the same as the first, feed my lambs. You know what's fascinating about that? The second time, that the charge that Jesus gives to Peter the second time is exactly what Peter gives to the elders of the church in Asia, the exact same Greek construction. Have a look at it. In John 21, verses uh, 16, to uh, just verse 16, he says, He said to him a second time, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep, or literally, shepherd my sheep, shepherd my flock. That's what that word tend means, literally shepherd. Peter is now passing on that same task, the same role to the men who were called to be elders. Their task is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And this is why we use the phrase pastor to refer to our elders. I mean, we could use the original Greek word poimen. I know it'd be really weird if you guys called me poimen. I don't know if I'm a fan of that one. So we've opted for the Latin word for shepherd, which we all know, which is pastor, uh, which, you know, is, is kind of hard in Australia because we are terrible at pronouncing our R's. You know, I even have to say it because I'd say R, like extended A. We just can't say R's for some reason. And so we come to pastor, instead of saying pastor like the Americans do, we, we make it sound like an Italian dish. And so it really confused my non-Christian family when I was like, yeah, I'm becoming a pastor. And they're like, what even is that? <laughs> they were so confused and I, I totally get it. But we're taking the Latin word and we're running with it. That's exactly what a pastor is, a shepherd. It's someone who guides the sheep, someone who leads the sheep and feeds them brings them to green pasture and brings them to water, making sure that they have everything they need. So the question naturally is, who exactly are the sheep that an elder must pastor? And this is important because Peter says, it's the flock among you. That's a really important thing. We often overlook that. It's the flock among you. It's not the flock in general. It's not all of Christ's followers. The responsibility of the pastor is to do a good job with the people that are here. Not the whole world, not the whole church across the whole world. And this is where we use the language of a local church, a local group of people gathered together in Christ's name. And this is why none of our leaders are responsible to God for the actions of another church. We're not responsible for that. We don't have oversight over that church. We don't have uh, authority over that church. We do not answer to God for them. Those shepherds over those people are the ones who will answer to God. It'd be like holding a farmer responsible for old mate down the road for how he looks after his animals. That guy doesn't have authority over him down the road. And it's important that we get this right because Jesus is the one who is the shepherd over the whole flock, not pastors. Pastors receive a, a small, uh, well, it's not small, it's a big, a big role, uh, but they, there's a small flock that they have that they do their best to discharge their duty. They can teach, for instance, they can write books, other churches may read those books. They can exhort, they can encourage other churches, but note this, they have no authority over them. That is the job of Christ. Jesus says as much as Matthew 25, verses 31 to 33. Here's what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. We see from this passage that Christ is the one with ultimate authority over his church. He's the true shepherd, the true judge, and he judges between sheep, as we saw in Ezekiel 34 when Daniel read that out. Pastors aren't qualified to do this task. They do the best they can to exhort everyone to be sheep. As long as the flock professes faith and live in obedience, we aren't the ones who do the job of separating goats from sheep. We're not qualified for that task. We can't look into, peer into people's souls and know whether or not they truly are professing believers. Our job is to shepherd the flock. Now, there is church discipline. 
And those are in special cases that Christ has qualified us to do. But we can't just peer into your soul if you're not in disobedience, not in sin, and try to work out whether or not you're a Christian. That's not our role. That's Jesus' role at the end of time. Jesus will reveal the secrets of the hearts of men later. When we try to do it, we make a huge mess. And I don't know if you've been to a church that has tried to do that kind of thing. It usually makes a huge mess. But the last thing I want to point out from this first section of Peter is he urges the shepherds here to be exercising oversight. Exercising oversight. That's one word in Greek. That's a really fascinating word. It literally means perform the task of a bishop. You might be thinking, when did bishops end up in this passage? Well, it comes from the word episkopos. And we see the same thing when Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders, Acts 20, 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Do you know what that word is? Bishop. Made you bishops to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And you see time and time again in the New Testament, this idea that God appoints multiple men to the job of overseeing and shepherding the flock of God. It's a plurality of leadership. It's not funneled upwards. It doesn't end up with a cardinal or a pope or an archbishop. It is done by the local leadership of the church. It's their task, their calling, their role to shepherd and care for their flock that is among them. That's why it's no small task. It's not for the faint of heart. And we should be very careful and astute before we appoint any man into church leadership. Very careful. All too, we are all too eager in our church to appoint anyone who shows any desire for leadership. Uh, Paul continues to warn the Ephesian elders in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We've got a lot of danger out there. There's the external wolves and then there's the ones that are among us who will seek after leadership in the church, who will want to lead people away. This is why we need qualified men. We need bold men, courageous men, men with chests, men with conviction, who love their people, who love their place. Without them, the whole flock of God will suffer. And that leads me to my second point, the qualifications of a shepherd. Let's keep reading in verse 2. Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter here is going to give three qualifications to elders for the type of leadership that he will expect. The first is that elders must rule by choice. They have to rule by choice. We don't draft elders. They're a volunteer army. They're not conscripts, but they are elite soldiers in the hand of God that choose and sign up. They sign up for the gig willingly. Peter says, this is how God would have you. He accepts it no other way. For instance, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. See that word here, aspire and desire. It is located in the person who's seeking leadership. They want to be a leader. They desire to be a leader. They have to want to do it. It will be a disaster for a church if they appoint a man to leadership it and he doesn't even want to do it. I mean, what's going to happen when things get tough? What's going to happen when things get hard? When persecution comes like Peter's been talking about in our passage? 
Either he's going to be super resentful to everyone who put him in that position in the first place, or he's going to turn tail and run. The desire for leadership, Paul says, he says here, it's a noble task. They're desiring a noble task. It's a good thing to want to be in church leadership. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But note, not everyone is qualified for it. Just because you want it doesn't mean that you're qualified for it. The second qualification Peter gives, he says that you, uh, it must not be for shameful gain, but eagerly. The reality is, even in the early church, there is a lot of money that can be made if you're in the business of dispensing religious goods and services. Human beings are religious by nature. We are made in God's image. We usually prefer it in our leaders when they tickle our ears, when they say stuff we like. And even some of us here who are Reformed, Bible-believing, we love the Word of God, we're all about the Word, uh, we hold it up and we say amen to everything that's said. Let's be honest. Sometimes we do like it when the pastor tells us week in and week out everything we already believe and everything we already are doing. But then it's hard when the Word cuts to the bone, when it cuts to our heart. We don't want pastors who tickle our ears, even those we consider Solid, reformed, biblical, theological. And we have all sorts of men that want to tickle our ears, don't we? We've got, you know, the the ones we all know about, the prosperity preachers, the social justice preachers, the LGBTQ affirming preachers. They write books, they make TV shows, they export their sermons and messages all over the world and they rake in millions of dollars for doing it. And people love it, they lap it up. They're happy to preach whatever you want them to preach as long as there is some shameful gain on offer. It's not even just dollars. Reputation, prestige, honor, a a platform is sometimes enough for these men. And that is still shameful gain. And the Bible has a word for these people. Wolves. Jesus warns us in Matthew 7.15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Something similar was happening during the time of the prophet Ezekiel. And here's what God said, Ezekiel 34. He says to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones and you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. And later in verse 10 he says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. The fastest way as a pastor to bring the wrath of God upon yourself is to profiteer of His holy bride. Fellas in this room, how cool would you be if your wife was exploited and money was stolen from her and people told her all the things that she wanted to hear and she basically just got enraptured by by this false kind of pretender husband? You know what I'd feel? Rage. I'd be very upset if someone would do that to my wife. How much more God, who loved and redeemed and restored His holy bride. Men ought to be very careful with God's bride. 
because he loves her and he is jealous for her. See, these men see the flock of God as people to exploit, not sheep to lead. And so some, some people, some churches have read this passage and they've taken that warning to heart. And they've said, yes, there is a lot of money to be made as a pastor. And so what we're going to do in response is we're going to keep our pastor on the poverty line. And we're going to make sure that his family and his household just have enough to get by. That they just have enough to eat their food. They just have enough to live under a roof. And in doing that, we're going to protect them from the temptation of shameful gain. The problem with this is the Bible does not tell churches to do that. In fact, Paul encourages churches to see to it that their pastors are well paid, which is fascinating. 1 Timothy 5.17, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I mean, it's a very simple biblical principle. A worker deserves his wages. And a good elder who doesn't work for money ought to be compensated so that he is freed up to continue the work of preaching and teaching. And so what's the opposite of shameful gain here in our passage? What should churches be looking for? Not keeping their pastors on the poverty line. What should they be looking for? Peter says this word here, eagerly. Now, I feel like we all look at that word and we're like, I feel like that needs to be passed out a little bit. We've got to know what's going on here. What does he mean by eagerly? Now, the problem with this Greek word that's translated here eagerly is it really doesn't have an English equivalent. It really, I mean, you could translate it as passionately. But that kind of, uh, it, it doesn't really get the idea of what's going on here. In fact, mostly this word is translated as wrath, anger. So what is it? What's going on with this word? Well, it's this word prothumos. And it literally means with intense passion. It's like this burning desire. That's why sometimes it can mean wrath. Every pastor must be zealous. They have to have a burning passion and desire for the flock of God or else they're going to find some other motivation to do what they want to do, be it shameful gain. Now listen to how Charles Spurgeon addresses young men that he's training to be pastors in his book, Lectures to My Students. Here's what he says. Do not enter the ministry if you can help it, was the deeply sage advice of a minister to one who sought his judgment. If any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or even a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. We must feel that woe is unto us if we preach not the gospel. The word of God must be unto us as fire in our bones. Otherwise, we shall be unable to bear the self-denials incident to it and shall be of little service to those among whom we minister. And Spurgeon goes on to say that the desire for the ministry must be this longing from which it is quite impossible for us to escape. Though we may have tried to do so, a desire, in fact, which grows more intense by the lapse of years. If you do not feel the consecrated glow, I beseech you, return to your homes and serve God in your proper spheres. But if assuredly the coals of juniper blaze within, do not stifle them. Man, I wish I could write like Spurgeon. But my question is, where are the men like this? Where are they? Why don't we see them in the Australian church? I mean, these kinds of men, it's obvious they're not born naturally. They don't come about naturally. They don't just pop out of nowhere. Acts 20, 28 says, the Holy Spirit is the one that makes a pastor. If men like this are not being produced in Australia, I mean, there's some, but we're not by and large producing many men like this, then we are left with very few explanations other than God's judgment. 
John Calvin says, when God wants to judge a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. And you could just as easily say, when God wants to judge a church, He gives them wicked shepherds. If God isn't giving these kinds of men, we have this burning passion that Peter describes here, then we need to get back on our knees and start praying. We need God to raise up these kinds of men. If there is a need for the hour in Australia, it is this, men who can lead the flock of God through hard times. Where are they? The third qualification Peter gives is this. They must not be domineering, but examples. Verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, this word domineering here means literally lord it over. Lord it over people. It's the same word that Christ uses in Matthew 20. You may remember this passage. Jesus called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Same word. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And I really do believe that Peter is calling to the elders to attend this passage to their attention. Remember what Christ said when he said, we must not lord it over others. A shepherd is to serve their flock, not barking orders, not nipping them like a sheepdog would, but calling them to follow into greener pastures. The pastor must be preaching both to himself and to his flock. He must be showing an example to others on how to follow Christ that's not just helpful, but powerful. He may have powerful preaching in the pulpit, but if his life is different, he cannot lead. You cannot lead to the green pastures if you're not there. We ought not to think of pastors like delegators or supervisors on a work site. I'm sure you guys know them in your workplaces and the places that you've been, the guy that will stand back and make sure that everyone's doing it. Outside my house, uh, there's this road work that's going on just up near North Rothbury. You guys may, trying to get out to Cessnock, know how difficult it is to get out that way. And man, the amount of times I've driven past and seen guys just relaxing on a shovel, sitting around, a bunch of people looking like supervisors that are really up to nothing. <laughs> They're just trying to keep everyone busy and productive. Now, we know bosses like that, and we don't respect them. We don't need men like that in the church. A real leader is in the trenches. The old shepherds, the old school shepherds, were out in the elements. If it was raining, guess what the shepherds could do? Get wet, exactly. They were going to get sunburned. They were going to get potentially hurt. Rain, hail, or shine. They were there with the sheep through whatever trial and tribulation came their way. They battled bears and lions. It was a more wild time back then. There were a lot more wild animals that you had to protect your sheep. And listen to how David described being a shepherd in 1 Samuel. David's talking to uh, Saul and he says, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose again, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Man, I've never heard of a lion having a beard, but I'm going to start using that now, I reckon. This is what a qualified, this this is the passage that qualified David to go down and slay Goliath. Saul looked at this little boy, well, he wasn't a little boy, but a young man, and he went, all right, you go down. You're a tough kid. You're going to be able to do it. This is the kind of fire we should expect, that we should want, that we should crave in our leaders. This isn't to say that pastors don't give direction and they don't speak. Of course they speak to us. Paul tells Timothy to preach the word 
be ready in season, out of season, reprove, repuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. A good shepherd knows how to bind up the weak and to go after the lost and to patiently care for the lowly, but he can also chase away wolves and battle lions and grab them by the beard. This is not a thankless task or a miserable duty. Peter promises something amazing. He says in verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is a reward of honor and recognition for those who labor faithfully in ministry. And when Christ comes to gather his flocks from the four corners of the world, he will reward all the shepherds who were faithful to their charge. These shepherds will be rewarded with the unfading crown of glory. It's the same crown that was given to an athlete at the end of his trial. Crowns which we know from Revelation are perfect for casting at the feet of Christ when we stand before him. Brothers and sisters, these are the men we need to be praying for. These are the men that we should desire to see raised up in our area and all over Australia. These are the men that we should seek in our leaders. And if we are leaders, what we should seek to be. Know that these words that I'm saying to you guys, I receive with full soberness and gravity. But enough with me. Peter's got a word for you guys now. As members of the flock of God. My third point, the responsibility of the flock. Let's finish up our passage, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter addresses this group known as the younger. And we've got to do a little bit of work to work out what's going on, because it's a little bit awkward, because we've got this language of elder and younger. So it sounds like the older you are, you're in leadership, and the younger you are, you aren't in leadership, which is a bit awkward for us in the church, because I'm a 29-year-old pastor preaching to people that are, you know, that are a little bit older than me. And so it's a bit awkward. Why am I the elder, and you guys are the younger? What is going on here with the language here? The words are not actually about our age, but about our status. And I'll show you why. In, that, in an ancient culture, age was, of course, venerated and gray hairs were an honor. Uh, but over time, the word became to refer to your status. It was a, kind of a well-established thing at this time. For instance, in Rome, you guys will know the senators, right? They served in the Senate. Do you know what the word senator means? It's the exact same word as presbyter in Greek. It's the equivalent. It means old man. That's what senator means. So you would imagine you have to be a pretty old man to get into the Senate, right? Nope. You'd start serving at the age of 30. Likewise, rabbis would enter their service at the age of 30. Timothy was a young man, and yet Paul tells him, don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. It wasn't as much of an age thing, but a positional thing. Uh, Jesus says it like this in Luke 22, 26. He says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader is one who serves. And that word here, greatest, magus, is where we get the word magistrate from. So those who are, you know, the greatest, the oldest, why am I saying all this? Well, we need to know who these younger people are. Now, some people interpret this passage, and it's a valid interpretation, that uh, Peter's addressing the young people because they're arrogant and young and defiant, and that's kind of a characteristic of young people. And so he's saying to them, guys, be humble, submit to your elders. Um, Everyone else knows to do that, but you guys need to kind of know this. I I don't know if I believe that. I think he's addressing the people in the church who aren't in leadership. When he says those who are younger, he's saying those who aren't elders, 
those who aren't in leadership in the church, not those who are young people. These people who are made up of both children, young men, women, older men and women, are to be subject to the elders, clothed in humility, not just to their leaders, but to all, as we see here. Likewise, we see in Hebrews 13, 17, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. See, a shepherd can't lead if the flock won't follow. A shepherd can't instruct if a flock won't listen. The authority of a pastor comes not from himself, but from Jesus. And he, the pastor, speaks the word of Christ to a congregation. And the congregation will either hear the words of Christ and follow, or reject the words of Christ and walk away. I'm not saying that everything a pastor says is going to be the words of Christ. I'm saying that when he's declaring the word of God, you either hear it or you don't. Now, healthy healthy churches usually uh, require good leadership. Good leadership, you can think of it as the horse that pulls the cart. But often, there are some carts that are pretty broken that even the most valiant of stallions could not move that cart at all. In our passage, uh, Peter has identified two major problems that will undermine healthy, spirit-filled churches. We've already seen the first one. Uncalled, disobedient, greedy, hireling pastors. We all agree we don't want them. We don't want them in our church. But also, prideful, contentious, antagonistic, defiant congregations. There's a lot of those around, aren't there? We all know of churches that will chew up their pastors and spit them out. They go through all their leaders and they can barely keep them for more than a few years. And usually the problem isn't them. Who's the problem? Their leaders. Even the best leader the most capable, spirit-filled, eloquent pastor cannot change that kind of church. It's impossible. This is a church that have dug their heels in. They refuse to be led anywhere. They don't want change. They don't want growth. And they definitely don't want transformation. They like things the way they are. They like their field. They don't want to leave it. So anytime a shepherd comes in and says, hey guys, come over here, they say no. Guys, I want to impress upon you the seriousness of this. God opposes these churches. These churches will wither and they will die as the Spirit departs. And it's worth getting out of there before it's too late. Peter says here, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When there are so many enemies and causes for persecution out in the world, the last thing we need in churches is persecution internally. And yet that's what we get. Peter, uh, Paul basically promised that to the Ephesian elders. And that's why there needs to be humility towards the men that God has called and placed in church leadership. But Peter also notes there must be humility towards each other. Brothers and sisters, you can't control your leaders. You can't control the men that God raises up, nor can you change the direction of the church at large in Australia. That's ultimately up to God. And we ought to petition Him every day to restore our churches to health. But there is something you can change. And you can do it today. You can live in humility towards those who have been placed under leadership. You can act with humility towards the sheep that are around you right now. Never, ever, ever underestimate how transformative that can be 
Never underestimate how much a word of encouragement to your leaders can impact them or a word of encouragement to those that are around you can spur them on to greater acts of courage and boldness. God specializes in using ordinary faithfulness and obedience to Him to bring His glory to fruition. Cannot overstate how amazing a humble, praying, God-honoring, submissive congregation is. God will not leave them without strong leadership. He feeds His sheep. God is mighty. He acts powerfully. He rewards obedience. Trust yourself to Him. Pray regularly for your church leadership. Please pray for me. Pray for Shem. Seek eagerly to encourage us in the things we do right. And if we miss the mark, please come and address us with all humility and respect. God holds Shem and I to a very high standard. And we understand it. We understand the solemn task that is laid before us. But also, pray for our great country. That God would raise up men like Peter has described here to do the work of ministry. Pray that the churches would set an example of humility to the world to show the world what it looks like to respect leadership. And I do believe that if we do that, we will start to see spirit-filled, healthy communities popping up everywhere. Will you join me with prayer? Father, we confess readily how much we need you. Father, we know that unless you build the house, the workers labor in vain. I pray, Lord, that you would empower this church here to be a bold witness and ambassador for your son, Jesus. That we would see your kingdom and glory and dominion extend to the four corners of this great country. That we would see our children love and know you. That our whole church would grow up in humility towards one another. And I pray, Lord, for the next generation, I pray, Lord, that you would select out of them men for your glory, that you would raise them up with the burning passion and desire to shepherd your sheep, that they would do so according to all the qualifications we find in Scripture, that they would be bold men who can stand up to the, all the forces and enemies arrayed against us here in Australia and declare your truths. I pray, Lord, for churches that we would not dig our heels in, but be willing to be led wherever we need to go. I love you, Lord. I praise you for all the things that you've done in our church, and I pray you continue to do them. In Jesus' name, amen.